The Cavaliers have a budding superstar, probably their best draft pick since LeBron James, where he used a number three pick to pick Evan Mobley, the USC center. Layla Tassi, I want to talk to you about this. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Layla, Laura Johnson, and Jane Cahoon. Layla, the only time I hear you talk about sports is about the Cavs. So what is your take on that draft pick? (laughs) (laughs) You didn't see that coming. I'm so glad you didn't ask me that. I didn't see it coming. And and I got to tell you, because my husband beats me up about this constantly, I I'm ashamed to say that I stopped following the Cavs when LeBron left. <laughs> and, and Layla, Layla, and this is Laura Johnson. Tried so defense, hard. While this was happening, we were watching our kids swim each other in a swim meet, so we were much more That's focused true. on a smaller sporting it's true. event. But but truly, I realized that I was a LeBron fan and not as I mean, I loved the Cavs so much, but so much of it was baked into LeBron as a person and as a player. And so I'm unfortunately not not fully abreast with <laughs> with the Cavs pick. OK, but so go Cavs, there's, really, go Cavs. there's really no point for a sports fan to listen to this podcast. Let's move on. <laughs> what important threshold has Ohio topped again when it comes to the coronavirus? I know, Jane Cahoon, that you don't think much of this because it was a phony number. But for months and months, we talked about this threshold because it was supposed to be the day we got rid of our mask mandate and all sorts of things. And we ended up not using that to make the decision. But we're back over it, which is a bit concerning. Yes, it is. But let me just say really all you need to know here, and and that is that Delta variant, bad. It's, it's spreading the virus and posing a real danger to unvaccinated people. And if you're not vaccinated, you're likely to get it. And if you get it, you might get seriously ill and you might die. So that's, that's really, this is just one more piece of uh, evidence that, that points to that bottom line. But what you're referring to is this benchmark that Governor Mike DeWine set for lifting his coronavirus orders. He wanted the state to get down to a level of 50 infections per 100,000 residents over a two-week period. But he ended up, as you said, just kind of ignoring that and announcing in May that he was he was going to lift the health orders anyway at the beginning of June. And then, in fact, that's, you know, about the time Ohio did get down to that level anyway. But now we are back up to 774 new COVID-19 infections per 100,000 residents over the past two weeks. The previous week's update showed that number at at 46, you know, so that just shows you, <clears throat> excuse me, how this variant has, has contributed to the spread here. Now, still, we're nowhere near as high as it was last winter, and that's when it was like 845.5 per 100,000 in, in mid-December. However, this most recent data does show that 61 out of the 88 counties in Ohio exceed this this number of 50 per 100,000. Wow. And um, the ones exceeding it in Northeast Ohio include Cuyahoga and each of its surrounding counties, Jaga, Lake, Lorraine, Medina, Portage, and Summit. So, you know, they're, they're still just like focusing on the vaccinations at the state level. And, um, you know, so it's it's... As I said, it's it's a bad situation. The Washington Post got hold of an internal CDC document that they published overnight, I think, and uh, it's frightening. The CDC is, has has got data they're about to release that shows that vaccinated people who get the Delta variant 
have as big a virus load as people who are unvaccinated and can rapidly spread it, that this is more contagious than chickenpox or the common cold. Uh, and they're pretty much petrified. They want to change the whole messaging about this, that the vaccine, while it does keep you from dying and get really sick, it doesn't protect you from getting infected. Although Pfizer claims that if you get the third shot, you will. So maybe that's coming. All of a sudden, though, the CDC has got a very different message about this. And we're all at risk. And that's why they're recommending we all wear masks again, because we're going to get it. Just like so the depressing, people. isn't it? Well, we could have avoided it if all the people that that turned vaccine into a political cause got the shot. I mean, this is this is being caused by people who refuse to follow science. And now everybody is in peril, including all of the children. But I I think over the next few days, we're going to see some pretty frightening messaging coming out from the CDC. And of course, the anti-vaccine contingent will will all say it's false and go onto Facebook and go down their rabbit holes of pseudoscience. Sad stuff, but it's sad to see we're back over that threshold. The scariest part of this, I think, Jane, is it's still the end of July. We're right in the middle of summer. That's when viruses are not supposed to be I spreading. Know, so, I know. So come October, man, oh man, I, I just, I hope that the booster shots suddenly become available. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority really doubling down on breaking the Ohio Sunshine Law by refusing to let people attend its meetings in person? Leila Tassi, I always think government is at its smartest when it gets caught breaking the law and instead of fixing the error they double down and try to justify it this is ridiculous rta i thought the new head of rta was going to turn this place around but they are as inept and ridiculous as they ever were you're right so by way of backstory our courtney astolfi had blasted them with a great story earlier this week about their decision to continue barring the public from the meeting room despite the july 1st expiration of that state law that had permitted public bodies to meet remotely during the pandemic. After July 1st, Arte was supposed to let the public return, but instead they were limited to just watching on Facebook Live. So after Courtney outed RTA for this, you would think Arte would just, you know, decide to open its meetings to the public, but instead they issued this lengthy statement defending themselves. They argued that the meeting was the last meeting that Courtney was reporting on was was open to the public via live stream on Facebook. And they said that there's no law that says streaming can't take the place of physical attendance. And then RTA stated that there is a precedent in Ohio law that allows for the public to attend remotely rather than person. And that relates to times when the number of public attendees at a given meeting exceed the capacity of the meeting room and are placed in a separate room to watch the meeting on closed caption TV. It says, you know, its boardroom can only uh, hold 44 people if safe distancing requirements are maintained and 40 or more board and staff members routinely attend the meeting. So that leaves little capacity for the public. And this is all part of their letter. So, you know, of course, you know, they couldn't find a bigger meeting space. God forbid they should have to think that far outside the box. They could have their staff members watch the meetings remotely so the public can attend. Anyway, the the AG has basically said RTA's interpretation of the law is incorrect and that the public has a right to be there in person. After all, if live streaming did satisfy the open meetings law, why would it have been necessary to pass that state law in the first place to permit it during the pandemic? 
So, you know, Courtney, Courtney spoke to one RTA writer, an activist, Chris Martin, who made just some excellent, excellent points. He said that he, he said that he had attended a city club event that featured RTA in public square recently. And then he got to meet RTA's new police chief who gave him her business card. And that kind of connection could never happen between the public and you know, RTA during a remote meeting. And he's absolutely right. Keeping the public at a distance is a way for RTA to avoid interacting with them. And it's he illegal. Also pointed I mean, out, yeah. it's, it's flat out illegal. They can't do it. And instead of saying, oops, you know, we're trying to be do the right thing, but you're right. We're going to welcome people in. They double down. It's, it's just it's, right. it's, it's a shock. I bet Justin Bibb, the mayoral candidate, is really glad that his term on that board expired <laughs> because <laughs> he'd be answering questions about this. Where are the board members on That's this? Where are the, where's the sanity yeah, right. for people to come forward and say, hey, hey, fix this. Let the people in. It's the people's business. They're spending our money. You know, and, and this this activist also said that he pointed out that RTA failed to provide riders with many of the COVID safeguards that other public transit agencies were providing across the country, such as rear door boarding and mask dispensers. So for the board to now claim that barring the public from the boardroom is purely to protect the public from COVID is outrageous. I, I thought that was such an excellent biting criticism of them at this moment. Just terrific watchdog reporting by Courtney. I'm so curious to see if RTA, uh, you know, about its course here and and uh, open some meetings after this. Yeah. Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Authority. Shame on you. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is ailing popular Cleveland Indians ger- general manager Terry Francona, who must step away from coaching for the rest of the season? Or Johnston, I don't know that there have been many more popular sports figures in town than Terry Francona. And so I think a lot of people are really feeling for him this morning. What did we learn last night? Yeah, absolutely. He's going to be done for the season because he's got to have surgery on his left hip and then his left foot as well. He had a staph infection in January, spent two weeks at the Cleveland Clinic and had to have uh, surgery, but now he's got to put a rod in his foot He's been wearing this walking boot since spring training. He hates it. And uh, he was supposed to wait till after the season, but he said he just really needs to take the time now. Um, it sounded like it was a tough decision for him to be able to step away, but that he he believes <clears throat> that he has the full support of the team. There was a great story that we had about the conversations he'd had with them, and his health is the most important. So um, this is not fun. He hasn't had perfect health for the last couple of years. Last year, he only had 14 games. I think he was there during the pandemic shortened season because of blood clots and related issues. He's 61 and he loves the game. He loves the team, but he's going to put his health first. Yeah, what's what's odd is that the toe thing came about. He was being treated for gout over the winter and they discovered he had a staph infection that was so severe they ended up cutting into his bone, which is why he ended up with the walking boot. Um, staph infections are no, nothing to mess with. They can rapidly spread. But it sounds like he's he's really put up with quite a bit of pain to coach as deep as he did into the year. And, yeah. and now he's going to have two sets of surgeries over weeks. And he's not going to be able to put any weight on that foot for weeks and weeks after the surgery. So, Right. And he, he recently, just recently moved into second place in the Indians all-time managerial wins list. 723 victory. That's right past Mark Hargrove, who had 721. He's almost at Lou Boudreau at 728. So I don't think he wants to walk away for good. I mean, I think his heart is with this team. He just needs to get this health stuff under control. 
No, we wish him well. You're listening to this week. There was a reason for sports fans to listen to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but I had time to do my homework on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Should Cleveland voters be concerned about the appearance of a mayoral candidate in the recent filing of records in the investigation into the House Bill 6 corruption scandal in the State House. Jen Cahoon, this is a great story put together, uh, and I, I think the details of it are worth discussing. Yeah, I think it's I think it's worth people's while to to be interested in this background if if they live in Cleveland especially. But bear with me because there's some twists and turns here to to walk through. But you know we've talked a, a lot about this deferred prosecution agreement that First Energy. Uh, recently signed with the Justice Department to avoid being charged in this corruption scandal. It required him to pay $230 million and to basically admit to this bribery scheme behind, you know, getting former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder into power and getting this House Bill 6 nuclear bailout law passed. But the, the when the agreement um, was revealed, you know, it there were all kinds of details about how this legislation was passed. And, and the documents identify a host of, you know, first energy executives, lobbyists, and public officials, all by pseudonyms, uh, such as like public official A, who's householder, and executive one, who's Chuck Jones, the fired first energy CEO, and then a bunch of other people, not necessarily implicating them in anything, but kind of identifying their roles and getting this Uh, bill passed. So with that long-winded explanation here, there's a reference to Senator Five in the document uh, when they recount a conversation between Chuck Jones and another executive, Mike Dowling, about the status of of House Bill 6. And we were able to determine that Senator Five is, in fact, State Senator Sandra Williams, who happens to be running for Cleveland mayor. Um, She was the lone Senate Democrat who co-sponsored House Bill 6 when it passed in 2019. And she had offered this amendment to the bill, and that's part of the public record, with with the controversial decoupling provision. And that was the provision that would have guaranteed First Energy a certain level of revenue based on a really high demand year of uh, 2018. So that was looked at by some as a real gift to First Energy. But Yeah, it was worth a uh, billion dollars over yeah. time. It was a gift. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll just stress right here that Williams has not been accused of any wrongdoing. And she made it really clear in an interview with Seth Richardson that she's served her constituents well. She would never be part of any bribery scheme or pay to play. So but anyway, to this uh, uh, reference to her, it was a text conversation between Jones and Dowling, where where Jones asked about the status of the decoupling provision and Dowling responds will be offered tomorrow by Senator 5 with help from Senator 6. Stupid, they're making her offer it, but we are convinced there's no monkey business. It's greased. So what does that mean? I mean, we don't know. Well, but stop, 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 stop. There there are two things about that that I think do raise alarm bells. The, the, The line that says, we don't know why they're forcing her to do it. That That is an alarm, right? Who forced mm-hmm. her to do it? Is this part of the the householder machine that was getting this thing done in bribery? Did they go to her and have something that they leveraged to force her to do it? And then what does greased mean? I mean, that that's not a word that a politician wants their name in close no, proximity no. to. And she didn't know. She goes, I, I have no idea. The only part of this that I thought 
she looks really bad on is when she said she doesn't remember sponsoring the decoupling amendment. I mean, let, let's let's think about that statement. This is the biggest corruption scandal in the history of Ohio. It has dominated headlines for an entire year. Decoupling was one of the biggest parts of it. And she's the sponsor of that. And she says today, yeah, I don't even remember. I don't remember that at all. Come on. That does not <laughs> make sense. I'm yeah, not buying she it. Said, you know, she didn't uh, deny it. I mean, she acknowledged her office dr- drafted it. And, you know, it happened to be offered the day after this text exchange that was related between Jones and Dowling. But she said, I offered an amendment. And that happens often where people ask members like myself to offer an amendment. Sometimes we offer those amendments. I did nothing with House Bill 6 that I have not done with other bills that have come before my committee or the Ohio Senate in general. So, you know, um, she remembered she had some sort of uh, text exchange with a guy named Ty Pine, who was a lobbyist and First Energy's then director of state affairs. And she said he told her there was some rumor that the leadership wanted her to sponsor this decoupling measure. But, you know, she she just was really vague on that. Um, she explained her, her support of House Bill 6 in general, that she wanted to keep the Perry and Davis-Bessey nuclear power plants open because... Uh, both because they offered zero emission power and she wanted to protect the jobs there. Except, um, let's remind everybody, First Energy came in to get those subsidies without providing a single shred of evidence that they needed them. And she supported it without Mm -hmm. demanding that they prove they needed it. She supported giving them a billion dollars out of our pockets without a single piece of evidence. Every time people say, well, I support the idea, we have to point that out because it's nonsense. If you're going to give away a billion dollars of Ohioans' money, you have a duty to figure out if it's justified. And clearly we now know it's not because they walked away from even trying to get it. Well, she did say in hindsight she would not have supported it. And she did support the repeal of that decoupling provision that that happened recently. But anyway, go ahead. She didn't know she was in there until Seth called her. So major points to Seth Richardson, our reporter, for spotting this and figuring out it was her because no one else did. Good stuff in Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why do some community activists say Cleveland officials are not doing enough to allow regular people to help decide how to spend the city's $511 million in stimulus cash? Leila Tassi, this is a strange one for me because I would argue that the participatory process is in electing the people who are going to make the decision. But the activists say, no, there should be more. Yeah, well, good point. Good point. We learned about this through our Stimulus Watch reporter, Robin Goyce, this week. So the city of Cleveland recently launched this online portal where people can contribute their ideas for how to spend the $511 million that they're going to get from the American Rescue Plan. But collecting feedback from the public is not quite the same as truly involving the public in the decision making. And that's what participatory budgeting is all about. This coalition of activists from several groups in Northeast Ohio have formed PBCLE, Participatory Budget in Cleveland, to urge leaders to adopt this practice here. So far, it's it's garnered the endorsement of mayoral candidates Justin Bibb and Ross DeBello, and then a slate of council candidates. And the idea is that the public gets to decide through a democratized process how a pot of money gets spent. In this case, the coalition is asking the city to set aside million. And that's a figure that represents the city's 30.8% poverty rate. 
over the course of a year, the public would nominate ideas and then they would vote on a community favorite. The process would require town halls, pub, black club and community meetings. And it would also require the city to kind of assemble committees of residents and policy experts to figure out how the winning ideas could be brought to life. So Robin reported that this process is being used in in hundreds, 700, more than 700 municipalities in the U.S. and Canada. Chicago has used participatory budgeting to fund over 240 projects. Atlanta has a million dollars in its Downtown Decides program. And Durham, North Carolina set aside $800,000 for each of its three wards to spend through this process. In Cleveland, we see it in Collinwood. Uh, They have the Ballot Box Project. And Tremont Speaks has used similar processes for spending in, in their neighborhood, too. It's, it's this very interesting progressive idea, but Robin is going to explore it a little further, how it works in those cities where it's well established. Because I'm wondering, you know, is this truly a demo- democratic process or is there some secret panel? Maybe I'm too cynical, <laughs> but I imagine that there's like, you know, the actual group that's making the final decisions in the background and they're just sort of, you know, similar to... Uh, you know, to choosing the Indians' new names. Oh, send us your ideas, but they already decided. <laughs> and well, you know I, how? Tr- <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I do. It, it seems like it's almost an alternative form of government, or it's it's an admission of a failure of government because the way it's supposed to work is you elect the city council. It's got seventeen members. They hold hearings about how to spend this money. The community comes in with ideas and talks about it, and and it gets winnowed down. This almost seems like, yeah, our council doesn't do anything. They make bonehead decisions. So we want an alternative way to go. It, 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 do you it think seems... that's false? Do you think that's not true? No, but then, <laughs> I mean, then maybe you should fix the, the system. But you're basically setting up parallel systems for spending the public's money. And in this one, it's self-appointed activists that decide. It's just... It's no, it, not clearly true, not true. I mean, I think there is a, a portal similar to what Cleveland has set up for the public to. I mean, there is a way for the average resident to submit ideas is my is my interpretation of how this works. Yeah, I don't think that it's just a group of um, I mean, then they vote on the ideas. So then once they've collected the nominated ideas, then they you know, there's some kind of. Well, that's what we're going to get to the bottom of. We're going to look at how it's working in these other cities and see if it actually that's what I want to know. Is it really is it really a democratized process or are we talking about a very small group of people who end up deciding um, and they're, you know, they're not elected officials and nor are they truly representing the public. So. I want to know. And and how transformative are the ideas that get funded? I mean, there is something to say for the fact that the people who live in, in the community know best what their immediate needs are. And it is hard to get those ideas to trickle up to the highest level of government. Yeah, no, I so, agree. I look, I, the, 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 the city council has been a, a do-nothing council. I get it. And, and maybe this is a form of the New Hampshire town meeting where you know, they get together at intervals and they vote on everything. And that's how decisions are made. Um, I think this is more a sign of frustration with the lack of progress of Cleveland than than anything, which is interesting because that whole council and mayor are up for election this year. So people actually have a chance to, to, to make some changes there. Um, and I do think it's interesting that some of the mayoral candidates are supporting this because they seem to have the pulse of the residents. Good stuff by Robin. Check it out mm-hmm. on Cleveland.com. It's this week in the CLE. 
We talked earlier this week about how a Cleveland-bound airliner was seconds from landing before jetting back up into the sky in a maneuver called a go-round. We've learned some more about that that kind of clarifies what we had said originally. We also now know how common this is, and it's pretty common. Laura Johnston, what are the details? Yeah, it's so common that the FAA does not keep track of it because it's not considered an emergency that pilots have to file any incident report for. Instead, it's a routine maneuver that pilots practice. Uh, The difference uh, from what we said originally this week is that the reason the FAA says this plane pulled up again was because of they were expecting an unstable landing. They originally said there was a slow moving vehicle on the ground. So they came back to us and said their original idea was wrong. And the city was glad to hear it because they didn't want to be blamed for a slow moving vehicle on the ground. But uh, Colin, or sorry, Cameron Fields talked to some experts who talked about how often this happens. And you could fly in a lot of commercial flights and never experience it. I've never seen it. But they said this is very common. They practice for it a lot. They they likened it to driving down a road and using your eyes to see what's going on on the sides of the roads, right? Like if you see somebody walking a dog who's darting around or a kid with a soccer ball, you're going to be hyper aware of that ball or that dog going in the street. And that this is the same idea that pilots can pull up if they don't think they can safely land on the ground. Yeah, I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, the FAA, the city all downplaying it, saying this is normal. I asked about this on my subtext account that goes out to, I don't know, 860 people. I got a lot of responses from people who experienced this because I'd never heard of it. I'd never experienced it. And there were a bunch that said, yeah, 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 I've been through this. It's not a big deal. The pilot explains it and everybody's fine. And then there were a bunch who said it was the most terrifying moment they've ever had flying and that it's a decade later and it still terrifies them. One described getting off the plane, thinking he was okay, going to a phone to call his spouse and completely breaking down in tears because it's so terrifying. So I, I'm not quite buying the idea that it's, hey, it's like driving well, down the road. I, I mean, <laughs> if, if I were seconds away from touching the runway and all of a sudden it rockets at a faster speed than I've ever experienced before, which is the way some people described it, I, I, I would remember it and I would, I, I'd be nervous. I feel like this is probably more common on small planes because they talk about practicing it, right? So if you're a pilot learning or you're getting your license, you're going to practice it over and over again. You're going to be a small plane. And to a pilot, it's seems pretty routine, right? If you're riding in the back of a 747, it is not going to feel routine. Yeah, I I, I appreciate all the people that responded. I, and it is very common because lots of people have experienced it a bunch multiple times. But I think my heart was with the people who described the abject terror of uh, living through it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is former President Donald Trump working to influence a special congressional election in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, are we ever going to be rid of this man? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. End maybe, of the question. Maybe if he loses this one, that would be a blow. So if you follow national politics, you you might have heard that there was a congressional race in Texas this week where the Republican candidate that uh, who was supported by Trump lost the election to another Republican. So that was a blow to him. Um, so lo and behold, next thing you know, we see this six figure infusion of cash from a Trump aligned 
uh, PAC called Make America Great Again Action into Ohio's 15th congressional district race. This is the special election to replace Congressman Steve Stivers of the Columbus area, uh, a Republican who, who left Congress to head the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. And the primary for that race is on Tuesday, just like the primary we have up here for the 11th district to succeed Marsha Fudge. But anyway, in in the in this Columbus area race, it's a it's a crowded field of Republicans and it's a Republican leaning district. So the person who wins is has a good shot of uh, winning the whole thing. So Trump is backing this coal lobbyist named Mike Carey. Uh, and but there are other well-known names in this race, including state senators Bob Peterson and Stephanie Kunze, uh, state representative Jeff LaRay, who's uh, who Stivers has endorsed, and former state representative Ron Hood, a well-known conservative in the in those parts. So some of them have been sort of associating themselves with Trump, but Trump has, you know, that's kind of raised his ire and he's tried to make it clear that Kerry is the guy he's endorsing. So anyway, as I said, this Make America Great Again Action Pack is spending almost $350,000 on targeted text messages, digital and TV ads uh, backing Kerry. So, you know, some of these reports suggest that that Trump is just determined not to suffer a second consecutive defeat here. And certainly the infusion of this money supports that. But, uh, so. I, you know, I just wish he'd uh, Ohio's had enough of him. He brings out the worst in people. He's just one of the most divisive people in history. And I wish he'd go to some other state, you know, just we're done. You did your rally here. Just leave us alone. Go, go play in Florida or somewhere. Uh, because he's just not, he doesn't raise, uh, the, the level of decency. We'll have to see what happens in the race. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That's going to do it. It's looking like we have a pretty delightful weekend ahead. What are the, you guys got plans in one of these final weekends before our kids head back to school? Oh, I don't know. Just relax. <laughs> yeah. I want to take the kid to Cedar Point to see that parade. So that's what uh, I'm going to try to do to, tonight. It's supposed oh, to be yeah, nice. It's supposed cool. to be beautiful weather all weekend long. Maybe a little bit of rain at the end. So... Enjoy it. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Alayla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back on Monday for another discussion of the news. Mm-hmm.